You're listening to Fly By Night, a podcast by FedEx Pilots for FedEx Pilots. Brought to you by the FedEx Master Executive Council of the Airline Pilots Association. And now, here's your host, MEC Communications Chair, Captain Chris Lee. My guest today is Scope Committee Chair, Captain Randy Brockwell. Thanks for coming, Randy. I'm glad to be here, Chris. Well, broadly speaking, let's talk about the importance of Section 1 in general and then scope in particular. Sure thing. Section 1 is recognition, scope, and successorship, and it's all about protecting pilot jobs. Uh, the company recognizes that ALPA is the representative for the FedEx pilots, and that includes those pilots that are on FDA and SEBA. All domestic and international flying by airplanes greater than 60,000 pounds max takeoff gross weight have to be conducted by pilots on the FedEx master seniority list. It also includes rules that a FedEx or any of the FedEx subsidiary companies were to get direct control of another airline flying airplanes greater than 60,000 pounds. Those must be flown by FedEx pilots. There are also additional rules for integration of seniority lists if FedEx acquired or is acquired by another airline. It expedites grievance procedures for Section 1, and it sets procedures and expectations if another unionized FedEx employee group were to go out on strike. And it protects... FedEx pilots from having to fly struck work if another U.S. cargo carrier were to go on strike. There's a lot more to Section 1 than just scope, but that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Okay, Randy. Well, you mentioned that scope covers all domestic and international flying. I know with the pilots, there can be a lot of confusion as to what those two terms actually mean. Can you talk to the pilots more about that? Sure thing. Domestic flying is pretty simple. If all the legs on a trip both originate and terminate in the contiguous 48 states. It's domestic flying. International flying is a little bit more complex. Those flights must either originate from, terminate in, or transit the United States or in a U.S. territory via locations outside the lower 48. So that means flying between the United States and Alaska, United States and Hawaii is considered international flying. It also includes FDA and SEBA flying. But the catch with international flying is it must touch the United States or U.S. international territories to be considered international flying. If it doesn't meet those two definitions of domestic or international flying, then it is not covered by Section 1. The attorneys like to call this extraterritorial flying, but the important part is it is not covered by the CBA if it does not touch the United States. Well, what scope provisions do we currently have regarding aircraft, that can be operated by pilots outside of the master seniority list. Like I mentioned before, aircraft under 60,000 pounds max takeoff gross weight, which we just commonly call feeder flying. That's primarily ATRs, caravans, and there is a new Cessna 2-engine 408 that's uh, out there. But anything under 60,000 pounds max takeoff gross weight is legal to be flown by pilots that aren't on the FedEx MSL. Uh, Unlike the PAX Airlines, uh, there is no limit to the number of feeders that can be flown, but there are other protections out there. Uh, FedEx cannot use multiple feeders on a route to eliminate or reduce overall trunk flying. FedEx may not use feeder flying to substitute for trunk flying to cause a furlough or a pay reduction, but there are carve-outs for emergencies such as the FAA has a fleet grounding of a particular aircraft type, then FedEx could use feeder flying to make up for that loss of those airplanes. Well, let's talk about an extremely hot topic right now, which is wet leasing. Why can the company engage in this practice? 
Well leasing is when an outside company provides all aspects of aircraft services, uh, aircraft, crew, maintenance, and insurance, commonly called ACMI, uh, to FedEx. Those aircraft exclusively operate for FedEx, i.e. there are no other customers that they're carrying freight for at the time. And the route and the schedule is determined by FedEx, and they usually use a FedEx call sign. So that's how you can tell the difference uh, between a wet lease and uh, maybe uh, other contract flying out there. The company typically uses uh, wet leases during peak operation. Uh, just as the old adage, you don't build the church for Easter, the company hasn't built the fleet and the manning for peak. They build it for sustained ops. Uh, if they did build it for peak, then what that would result is, is after peak, overmanning and uh, either low BLGs or, in the worst case, furloughs. Um, so what wet leasing does is it acts as a shock absorber. It allows the company to capture short-term business while maintaining sustainable fleet size and manning. Uh, what we saw during COVID was essentially perma-peak. We had a couple of years where there was a very high amount of flying. The company couldn't uh, take all the business that they were actually being offered, so we saw long-term wet leases during that period. On the other hand, this year, um, the peak isn't so big, and current manning can absorb that, so the company is not doing any wet leasing for peak. Well, when the company does wet lease, there are penalties associated with that. Can you talk about those penalties and what triggers them? Uh, sure thing, Chris. Uh, first of all, annually, the company is allowed to wet lease two aircraft for two bid periods without any penalty whatsoever, and that is in all situations. gets a little more complicated after that. Uh, for the same two periods, the company may wet lease up to the number of airplanes that they added to the fleet that year. So, for example, if the company added a net number of five aircraft to the fleet, and that may mean adding seven airplanes and getting rid of two, but you've got a net addition of five, then they can wet lease five airplanes for those two months with no penalty. On the other hand, if the fleet reduces by, let's say, five airplanes, they can still wet lease a minimum of those two airplanes for the two-month period without any penalty. If the company goes beyond those two bid periods, and here's the kicker, and those aircraft are used on routes that are regularly and historically flown by FedEx pilots, or if the company wet leases more than their allowed number of airplanes, then they must pay a penalty as if a FedEx crew with average seniority was flying those flights. Who determines what's regular and historic? That is based on prior bid packs. If we can go back and find in prior bid packs where FedEx was flying those routes, then that is considered regular and historical. If there's no bid pack um, history behind that, then that's not. The way they figure these penalties is a little complex. They do this by taking the most recent bid pack that was used to fly that route, and they transpose it on the flying that's done during the wet leases. So that includes layovers, deadheads, et cetera, as if FedEx crews had flown those flights. It's not what the wet lease crews actually did. In addition to these penalties I've just mentioned, if the company wet leases any aircraft for more than four bid periods, they have to pay a penalty that is twice the number of block hours times the pay rate for a three-pilot crew with maximum seniority, including international overrides. Uh, three of those bid periods have to be consecutive. The fourth bid period can be broken up into four seven-day periods. And historically, this penalty, this uh, twice uh, the number of block hours, has produced the lion's share of our scope penalties. Well, a common question we get is, when are we getting our scope penalty payments? And also, do we have any more coming? We have received, and the MEC uh, has approved, the calendar year 22 scope penalty payment of uh, just a little bit over $15 million. 
We should see that distributed early next year in January or February. We also have one additional scope penalty payment coming for the flying that was done during calendar year 23. Uh, during January through June, uh, the company wet leased those two Atlas 747s that we saw on the ramp forever. So we will be getting a penalty payment for those six months. Obviously, it's not going to be as high as the payments we've seen in the past because it's for a shorter period of time. Well, are there any scenarios where the company can engage in penalty-free wet leasing? Sure. Outside of the two months that I talked about earlier, if we lose an aircraft hull due, due to severe damage or destruction, the company can wet lease uh, one aircraft for each hull uh, until those aircraft are replaced or for a maximum of one year. The company also sometimes contracts for certain configurations of shipments that can't be carried on FedEx airplanes like satellites or aircraft. In those case, they can wet lease airplanes that can carry those shipments. And in the third case, if the company doesn't possess the requisite authority to fly a route, they can use wet leases to fly that route, but they have to make a good faith effort to get that authority so we can start flying it with FedEx aircraft. Well, our pilots do a great job of notifying us when they think wet leasing might be happening, and we were recently informed that the company had contracted to a third party to operate between Miami and Honduras. Can you talk to the pilots more about this situation? Yes, uh, we received great information from the, uh, from the pilot group, and we confirmed with the company that they had contracted with Coletta Charters II to operate a 737 twice weekly between Miami and San Pedro Sula Airport in uh, Honduras. It began in August uh, of this year, and it's actually been flown for years, but it's been flown by a feeder ATR. That's now grown to the point that the ATR couldn't handle all of the freight, so the company contracted to have a 737 flying twice weekly. Uh, it has now actually grown to three times weekly. We engaged the company on this, and they uh, claimed the 1B7 exemption uh, that I just mentioned of saying they didn't have route authority to fly it. They also claim that they are working on that authority, and the plan is to replace that with a uh, trunk 757 once the proper authority is gained. At this point, we're still engaging regularly with the company and with Alpa National to ensure that that good faith effort is being maintained. Another common question we get is belly freight. What does our scope section in the contract say about this kind of freight? Belly freight falls under Section 1B4 that describes a list of third-party flying the company can do. And it's not just belly freight. Um, it describes uh, interline, co-load, code share, part charter, and block space agreements. And I know that's a mouthful there, but they're all very similar. They're different in how they're actually contracted, but it all involves moving FedEx freight on another carrier's airplanes and sharing that airplane with another entity. So it's not just all FedEx freight being flown on another airplane. Uh, FedEx is not using the whole plane. They're actually, the rest of the plane is being used by other customers. Belly freight's the most visible we have of this uh, 1B4 flying, but it also includes moving cargo by all freight scheduled carriers. There are a lot of airlines out there just carrying freight, particularly in South America and Africa, that uh, FedEx contracts with. Uh, historically, the, the company uses belly freight for low-yield freight and to serve smaller markets. Uh, for example, we, FedEx advertises that they serve over 200 countries, but our trunk aircraft only fly into about 50 of those. The remainder of those countries are served by third-party carrying. Uh, 1B4 is the only section that really differs between domestic and international flying. Internationally, there is no restriction on belly freight. Domestically, the company can only use it when it's necessary to expedite or when economically necessary. 
Uh, belly freight really dried up during COVID because the passenger airlines weren't flying. It was down about 70% Trans-Pacific at one point. It has been steadily uh, increasing since uh, we've come out of COVID, but it's still not quite at the levels we saw back in 2019. So the company's moving more in the direction of how they've historically operated with belly freight. That's correct. The company is, continu- uh, is continuing to use more belly freight as more belly freight space becomes available. Moving forward, what can we expect from the scope committee? Scope polled very strongly in the post-TA survey, so we plan to initiate a scope education campaign. This podcast was the first part of the campaign and was very general in nature. Uh, future communications are going to drill down in specific areas. Also, there will be an upcoming survey that includes uh, questions on scope. We expect both the educational campaign and the survey to generate questions in the crew force. Uh, please send your questions and concerns via DART so we can address those uh, in future communications and generate an FAQ document. Well, great, Randy. Thanks for coming, and thanks for listening. As Randy mentioned, if you have any questions, please go to our website, fdx.alpa.org, and utilize the DART link. And as always, be safe out there, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>